We live in an era of big brands, companies that wield incredible power and influence around the world. But as we all know, with great power comes great responsibility. Can companies do more than generate profits in the poorest and most fragile parts of the world? Should they move beyond simply doing no harm? In her book, Corporate Peace, Mary Martin shows how big business is increasingly important in building a safer world. Welcome to Afterwards. I am Angad Singh Chowdhury, co-founder of Quilt.ai. Here talking today with Mary Martin, director of the UN Business and Human Security Initiative at LSE Ideas. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how businesses can use their influence for the common good, the potential dangers of their involvement in peace building, and where the corporate peace is indeed possible. Welcome to the Hearst Afterwards podcast, uh, Mary. It's nice to meet you. And you. Thanks for having me, Angad. So let's get into the thick of it. You mentioned that very few companies have been parts of formal efforts to stabilize and redevelop crisis-effective countries. Why do you think this is the case? I think it's a lot to do with public attitudes to business over the past, let's say, 50 years, so quite a long time. And it's business attitudes as well as our own public attitudes towards companies. We've tended to put the private sector in its own special box that includes having its own rules with the overriding sense that the business of business is to make profits and nothing else matters. So companies haven't been part of the conversations about social problems, about peace, and indeed they've kept themselves aloof from those kind of concerns, particularly in the area of conflict and peace. They just didn't see it as part of their business. I hear you, but conflict and peace are not the operating areas for most businesses. Most businesses sell industrial products or consumer goods. How do you make that leap as a business owner? Well, I think increasingly they are part of conflict environments. There's been a lot of attention in the last 20 years on companies as conflict drivers. I think we're probably all vaguely familiar, at least, with the experiences of, say, Shell in the Niger Delta when they were seen as contributing to civil war there and their appalling treatment of the indigenous population. We've been aware of the ongoing conflict in somewhere like Democratic Republic of Congo, where companies have flocked in to extract minerals, but in doing so, they have become part of the conflict itself. So I think this idea that companies can remain outside and, if you like, insulated from conflict and peace issues was a false idea, but has been demonstrated as palpably wrong in the last decade or so. For those who won't know about the conflict in the Niger Delta, could you just give us a short summary of that? I think this was probably one of the first scandals that woke people up to the power of business and its negative influence on a conflict. So Shell, I mean, Shell was not alone, but they certainly were in the forefront of being exposed as contributing to human rights abuses in the Ogoni Delta, which is the oil producing region in Nigeria. And in trying to extract oil, you know, they rode over the rights and the safety and the well-being of the local people. And 
to a lesser extent, you know, that's a pattern that is repeated all over. You know, companies have gone in and we saw it particularly with oil and gas or mining companies, that the idea of the rights of local populations just being trampled on. So I think the interesting thing about the Shell example and and the Niger Delta was that it really woke people up to that link between business, between global business, human rights abuse, and the fact that a large transnational, multinational company was pretty much able to do what it wanted. It had stitched up deals with the Nigerian government and there was a sense of impunity around it. So all the problems, if you like, the issues that we're now dealing with, which are dealt with in a growing narrative about business and human rights abuses, a growing narrative about business and peace, I think they were first flagged up perhaps in the case of the Niger Delta. What are the consequences historically, uh, both inside governments as well as on these companies, once something like this happens? Well, I think what has been interesting in the last 10 years, and I say 10 years because it's just over 10 years that we've had something called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which was the first attempt to deal with this problem that you've got huge companies, often much bigger than the GDP, you know, the gross national product of an individual state. These are entities that have enormous resources and have power. They are operating beyond, in an international jurisdiction, they're operating in a local country where there is no accountability. There are no, for example, transparency rules or... In the case I use in the book of Kosovo, there are laws in place, but there is no money to fund the kind of staff or the organizations, the offices to follow up if there's any transgression of those rules. So you have a complete imbalance. And when the UN devised these principles, which are kind of what we might call soft law, so there's no court necessarily that they can be brought before. But it does create a different story. It creates more attention. And I think one of the messages of the book was very much to say, we are now in a different era. There is accountability through much more attention, attention by media, attention by customers, employees, on what companies do, even if it's in some remote corner of the world. Until now, they've thought they could probably do what they liked there. Now the sort of spotlight is on them. And you've got more international regulations, you've got norms and ethical standards like the UN guiding principles and other voluntary principles on security and human rights. And you're starting to get Domestic legislation. I mean, what is really interesting is you've got legislation in, say, the US, in the European Union, in the UK, which for the first time goes after companies who commit abuses in other jurisdictions, in other countries. And very interestingly, if you take the um, UK Bribery and Corruption Act of 2011, it goes after individuals in those companies. So I think the sense of impunity and the increase in accountability is a big game changer in all this. 
And do you believe that social media and the ability of people to have public declarations and public conversations about what companies are doing in the remote parts of the world, do you think social media has had a role to play in this? Yes, undoubtedly, as we're seeing in so many areas. I mean, you're seeing now in the war in, in Ukraine, the ability to shine a spotlight and the access of ordinary people to getting news out has been enormously important. I think even in some of the examples in my book, which predate, if you like, the kind of big social media wave, but what we've seen is incredibly powerful is not so much international legislation, because that is still relatively rare, but is the force of public opinion. There was a, a case, um, one of the ones I refer to, of French companies that decided to build the light railway in Jerusalem, which connected what are regarded as illegal settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories, connect these settlements to make them viable, connect them to Jerusalem. The backlash by international public opinion was enormous. And that was done through social movements, activists being quite clever and smart. So suddenly you had train commuters in South London whose railway was operated by the same French company blockading the stations. You had people protesting outside council offices because, again, they had contracts with the same French company. So that was just one example, and there are plenty of others that continue today. The mistake that the French companies, Veolia and Alstom, made, it was basically a contract that was agreed by a kind of small local subsidiary with the Israeli government. And I don't think head office even really thought too much about it. And there was certainly, and this was proved, there was very limited, if any at all, consultation with ordinary people across the board. So you've already got an investment, an intervention by a company which is, if you like, built on sand. It wasn't a good, strong basis. If they had consulted properly, if they consulted all aspects of the community, the Palestinian as well as the Jewish, if head office had paid attention at the outset and not left it as a kind of technical construction project, you know, this had enormous political overtones. And they were, which I think companies often are, at least a little bit naive and thinking they could just handle it as a technical construction contract. At worst, you know, they kind of willfully ignored the kind of ramifications of what they were doing. So it's almost about saying that companies in the past could afford to be quite careless about how they operated without thinking of the full human impact, seeing the full consequences of what they do, just saying it's not our problem. Businesses think they can sort of get away with this business behavior. It may make sense in strict profit and loss terms, but it has enormous implications in terms of the wider consequences. So whether it's a company in DRC that says, great, I can mine in this area with 
500 less jobs, 8,000 less jobs than I did five years ago because the technology has changed, it's improved, I need fewer workers. What happens to those 8,000, 7,500 workers that you've actually laid off? They're beyond your perimeter fence, but they're still part of the kind of the environment in which the company will operate. And you do as a business manager, as a CEO, have to think about that. And I think that's what companies are increasingly coming to terms with, just lifting their sights and their horizons a bit beyond their profit and loss account. Yeah, there is definitely a narrative around how maximizing shareholder value also has to take into account the people and the processes that the business touches. So all of this is happening. But at the same time, we are also seeing a fairly a cynical view also emerging around these types of practices where individuals you know, on social media believe that fundamental change is not taking place. People are still getting hired and fired and companies are still thinking about shareholder value. And a lot of this is primarily just marketing or greenwashing or woke washing, as some call it. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's a danger, of course. And if we look at something that's been very powerful in in changing the narrative, the sustainable development goals, and the whole discussion, public debates around sustainability. So companies have jumped on that bandwagon massively, you know, sustainability is now a kind of watchword. But if you look at the particular goals that many companies chose at the outset, they were goals which were really synonymous with just cost cutting. They were ways in which companies themselves could make themselves more profitable, more efficient. And it wasn't really doing much for positive social impact. I think, again, that is shifting. I mean, there's one goal amongst the SDGs, which is goal 16, which is peace, justice and strong institutions. And going back to your or very first question. I mean, I think that was a goal that most companies at the beginning thought, well, that's nothing to do with me. You know, that's traditionally, that's government's job. That's maybe NGOs or civil society, but it's not the role of businesses. And increasingly, I think intelligent executives are saying that, well, of course it matters because I can't do business. I can't be a sustainable company, to coin that phrase, if there's conflict raging around me. So it's a two-way street. You know, there are examples where companies definitely fuel the conflict, maybe through their purchase of minerals or oil and extractive resources. But it's also about thinking, well, I need to contribute to that stability around me because that's also going to be good for me. So a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment, and I'm doing it with the UN, is to think about what are the kind of win-win situations rather than saying, you know, a company has one agenda and a community or a government has a different agenda. Where do these overlap? Where is the common ground? And it's surprising to a lot of companies how much common ground there is, because what communities want, say, is peace and a stable environment. And companies need that in order to operate. So if you can 
in my view, if you can expand, if you can identify and then expand that common ground, that's a better better basis for the relationship between business and society than kind of endless confrontations over human rights abuses or, you know, whether a company is meeting its health and safety regulations and so on. It's not to say that those battles don't matter, especially when there are kind of blatant infringements. But I think you can also have a parallel set of conversations, which is about saying that business can contribute to social goods, to, you know, social well-being. It has resources, not just money, but information, logistics, problem-solving skills, and how are we going to put those to good use? You know, where are interests overlapping and what? how can we, you know, make sure that those overlapping interests are at the forefront? And how can we also make sure that those overlapping interests are enforced? Because if the state and the community and the company are all working towards to ensure a peaceful environment within which to conduct economic activity, the two most powerful players there are the state and the company. And in some cases, it is actually the company and the business. So there is a fundamental power imbalance in that scenario. So the question then for me is, what is enforcement and justice in that in that situation? Because it's not an equal playing field. It's definitely, you're, you're totally right. I mean, and I think companies sometimes seem to just ignore that fact that whatever you do, you are always going to have a power imbalance you know, that leads to often this sort of confrontational kind of situations where local communities, activists, NGOs, human rights defenders and so on are constantly asking for more to make sure their their voice is heard. I certainly am not suggesting that you minimise the the regulatory aspect. There do need to be regulations. In particular, there needs to be transparency. But I think it's also about encouraging better kinds of dialogues and relationships. I mean, the missing component in all this is trust, trust and confidence. And in lots of situations, that trust has been completely eroded, where the experience of local people on the ground in communities where there are mines or there are hydroelectric dams or there's, you know, large-scale intensive agriculture is that they don't trust the companies because they've seen how the companies have behaved in the past. They've seen how they've extracted resources and not shared the benefits. They've seen how they have been complicit with corrupt government officials, or they've seen in the worst cases how they have aided and abetted, you know, paramilitary forces. So I think in in lots of places you've got a severe absence of trust. And then if you take a completely different context to, say, you know, Western developed nations, you have the same sort of thing. Companies that have behaved badly leave a stench behind. People don't trust companies to do the right thing. So I think what you need is you need to have dialogues going on, particularly on the ground, that involve the company, local civil society, community members, 
government officials, people need to literally be able to sit round the table and say, look, where are the overlapping interests? Where are the opportunities of working together? What are the problems that face us as communities? Or what are the priorities that the government have, for example, in policies? And what are the company's interests? And where are those overlapping? And, you know, how can we exploit that common ground? So it's a quality of dialogue that I think needs to happen to rebuild trust. And, and to make those kind of relationships work going forward. And many of these states are extremely vulnerable and corrupt. Is the suggestion that perhaps we don't do business with those states and not mine in those states, etc.? Because dialogue with a counterparty that is uh, not thinking in the same terms as you are is often counterproductive if not dangerous. Well, it is. I mean, you've got extreme examples, as you have at the moment, for example, with Russia. The decision is that we cannot do, we should not do business with them at the moment to send a strong signal. But most of the time, we're talking about perhaps different scenarios where one should also remember that international businesses and foreign investment has the power to influence the government as well. They are kind of norm shapers companies. And again, this goes back to looking at what role they play. Do they have a role in things like peace and stability and justice and so on? And often companies have enormous power to influence the kind of corrupt or inefficient even behavior of government. So I think they can and they need to use that power. I'm not arguing for them as putting them on a par with state actors. They're not democratically elected. But I think a lot of this story is about recognising, being really realistic about the effect and the influence that big business has and using it judiciously. And I think in a lot of circumstances, they can actually shape government behavior as well. But that is giving them power over the state that has been elected by citizens and not by the company. So how do we navigate that minefield? No, I'm not arguing for them to take the place of government. I think it's a delicate balancing act. I'll give you an example. There was um, a mining company in um, Colombia which has enormous power in one state in particular. And they had a new CEO. Interestingly, the CEO had come from another very global extractive business so he that had been exposed to scandals in the past. Maybe he'd been bruised by this, so that informed his views. But he said to me, "We there's a real problem in this area of Colombia. The people don't have enough clean water. I'm fed up with waiting for the government to do this. I'm fed up with waiting for the government to deliver on development goals, on basic needs. That This is its job. The government should be doing it, but they're just not. So I'm going to step in. We're going to provide water to you know, the citizens of this particular area. That's a beautiful story. But the other counterpoint of that story is I'm fed up of the government not able to provide security. So I'm going to develop my own security apparatus. That's the concern I'm trying to untangle in my own mind. No, 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 absolutely. But the end of the story was he'd come to me and said, you know, how am I going to do this to deliver water? And I said, I don't think you should be 
doing that. Or if you do it, you have to think about the governance of that, you know, who regulates it, who, because all that is happening in that situation is the company is stepping into the shoes of the government, but there is less, even less accountability on the company than there is on the government. So this is dangerous territory. And as you say, if you're talking about security, and that's the situation in many countries in the world today where, you know, the government cannot provide the basic security function, keeping its people, its own citizens safe, either because it can't or it won't. And the government itself is the main threat to citizen security. But do you want loads of private security people running around? No, of course you don't. So there are limits. There are definitely dangers to companies stepping into this development role. And we need to be aware of those. But Again, my feeling is if you look at it in a totally different way, if you look at it from the ground up, for example, in loads of small communities, and we do this, this is part of my kind of day job, we sit down with communities and say, what are the things that frighten you? What are the things that threaten your existence? But also what hopes and what expectations do you have? What resources do you have? You know, what knowledge, know-how do you have? What we try and do is to get companies to, you know, set up that dialogue with local people and with government as well, so that everybody can agree on what the local priorities are, how they can be addressed, who should address them, you know, because clearly in some areas, this is the government's job. It's not a company's role. And there are dangers in adding to the disproportionate power that the companies often have. But I think you resolve that from the ground up and through better quality dialogues, dialogues that are focused on everyday needs, everyday living and life. How can that be made better? You know, with gains for people, with gains for government development programs, and of also ultimately gains in the business environment, the prospects for a company to do its job and ultimately to make money. What happens when citizens see that the company provides more security than the state? What are the consequences of that for, for the world? Well, I think a lot of our public discussion at the moment is about democracy, you know, democracy under threat, whether populist authoritarian regimes are almost, in the view of some, a better way of getting things done. And therefore, does does democracy even work? Well, I think the whole business private sector involvement is part of that. We used to think that democracy was somehow linked, we used to call it liberal democracy, with free markets and a kind of neoliberalism that somehow magically, if you could achieve in a society a situation where business could flourish, you know, free markets were operating, that that would somehow magically deliver peace and stability. I think we've become much more sceptical around that, that democracy matters, good governance matters, but part of that is also about businesses as social actors acting responsibly. So I think there is an onus on all parts of society, whether it's the private sector, the public sector, civil society, to demonstrate how 
good multi-stakeholder governance works. And I think regulation is part of that, good legislation is part of that, strong institutions are part of that. But of course, that doesn't always happen. In many places in the world, those things don't exist. So how do you compensate for that? And I suppose the argument of my book is that there are ways in which the private sector business can act responsibility in ways that compensate the danger is obviously to make sure that they don't just accrue more power to themselves. So it's a delicate balancing act. But I think the old view of seeing business and the private sector as somehow removed from all this, that it wasn't part of its remit, it wasn't its responsibility. I think we have almost gone through that argument now. And it's more about thinking how, how do we put in place good business society relationships with enough checks and balances, but recognising that companies do and, and can play a role in good development, in good governance and in peace and stability. Thank you to Mary Martin for taking part in this episode. You can buy Corporate Peace now from Hearst Publishers' website. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers and Quilt.ai at QuiltAI underscore on Twitter. And to get news on the latest Hearst books, subscribe to the email updates at HearstPublishers.com. I'm Angad Singh Chowdhury. Thank you for listening. And follow me on Twitter at Angad C.